Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. We have the good fortune to be joined today by Peterson Toscano, a name that regular listeners will surely recognize. You can find his Citizens Climate Radio broadcast on our NorthernSpiritRadio.org website, and you should only be so fortunate as to see one of his incredibly insightful, humorous, and dramatic theatrical productions. But here's one more talent that Peterson Toscano has in spades. He's a biblical scholar with a fresh mind and piercing view. He's just released a transformative video. It's called Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. You'll never look at the Bible in the same way, including the way that it's been used to oppress people off the mainstream gender pathway. This is revolutionary work, healing a blindness that's been nearly universal. Peterson Toscano joins us today via Skype to talk about transfigurations. Peterson, welcome back to Spirit in Action for the umpteenth time. It's great to be back, Mark. You know, we've got a long history. I first interviewed you back in 2007, and that was at a Friends General Conference gathering. We met face-to-face for the first time, and that was when you had put out and you were performing, doing time at the Nomo Homo House. I still can't say that well this well after 10 years. Can you believe it? Yeah, it, people say it all sorts of funny ways. But yeah, that was that was 10 years ago, and that play has since been retired, and I haven't performed that play since 2008. Well, one of the things that's happened between 2007 and now is the world has changed very significantly for non-conforming sexual and gender identities. How has that hit you on ground level? Does that have something to do with why you retired doing time at the Nomo Homo House? Well, yes and no. I mean, I retired homo doing time in the Homo Nomo Halfway House because... It was a very personal story about how I tried to find a cure for being gay. And it was uh, an artistic and comic way of looking at trauma. It was a very effective way of doing it. But there came a point where I couldn't do it any longer because to continue to do so re-traumatized me. And it also put me into a box that I was the ex-gay survivor. And it was in 2007 I appeared a lot in these national TV shows And all they were interested in was hearing how I was a victim. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to be a victim in everybody's mind and eyes for the rest of my life. So I laid that work down and I began to see other experiences as I was moving in and out of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender spaces and began to understand that if you were transgender or gender nonconforming, you were getting 
lots of trauma and oppression, not just from non-LGBTQ people, but even from gay and lesbian people and gay and lesbian organizations. And it was shortly after that time that the Employment Non-Discrimination Act was going to go up for a vote in the U.S. Congress. And very last minute, the people that were putting the, the bill forward took out protections for transgender and gender nonconforming people. And it was such a public display of disregard that it, it really galvanized transgender and gender nonconforming people to really look after themselves in a bigger way. And that's when we saw the growth of a lot of organizations and a lot of stories coming out about trans people. That moved me because, you know, people can accuse someone like me of always speaking to the choir, preaching to the choir, because who comes to my show but people who agree with a lot of the things that I'm talking about. So I thought, well, if I am preaching to the choir then I have a responsibility to get the choir to sing a little bit louder, to sing a little bit better, maybe give them a new song to sing. And as I was becoming more and more challenged and learning more about transgender and gender nonconforming experiences, I thought this needs to be part of my work. So you're a choir director now in addition to everything else you do. (laughs) Wow, that's impressive. You know, one of the things that you added on, and I already mentioned this in the intro, you do monthly radio programs about climate change under the name Citizens Climate Radio. You're hosted a number of places, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Northern Spirit Radio. And then every three months, you sit in for me on Spirit in Action, which I appreciate deeply. It allows me to do my work much better to have that help from you. So first of all, thank you for that. But the second part is, this is not in the realm of either lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, whatever, non-conforming, sexual. I mean, unless there's something sexual about climate change that I haven't latched onto yet. It's that hot climate action. Oh, the hot climate. <laughs> That's what it is. I, You know, it's so weird. I, um, I have a support committee as part of my Quaker meeting, and we meet every quarter. And we just talked about this, just how I'm involved with three complete different careers happening simultaneously, where I'm doing LGBTQ activism, Bible scholarship, and climate advocacy and education. And they seem like they have nothing to do with each other. And in fact, there are some people in the world who only know me for the one area and are completely unaware of the other stuff that I do. And I, you know, to me, they're, they're all connected. In fact, I do a show now called Everything is Connected, an evening of stories, most weird, many true. And I connect my experience of trying to de-gay myself with a Bible story about a gender nonconforming person with climate change. And to me, how they're connected is that they are all issues where some people are on the inside, some people are on the outside. Some people are more protected and privileged than others. So, for instance, with the LGBTQ issues, you have these situations where if you're in an evangelical church, like I was part of, you were welcome, but you were denied access to certain places, particularly with ministry. If you were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or a woman, you bumped up against this stained glass ceiling. And so there's this situation like we're all one big family, but not everyone has access to the table. And then with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer community, I realized that, yes, we were all in the same boat together. We were all experiencing a collective trauma from society, but then some of us experienced more trauma 
if you were transgender, gender nonconforming, a person of color, a person with disability. So we're all in the same boat together. And then climate change is so much like that, too, because climate change affects everybody, right? It's a global issue, global warming. But it doesn't affect everyone equally. For one, some people have polluted far more than others. And some people experience the effects of climate change far more than others. If you live in Miami, for instance, if you live in Malawi, for instance, you're experiencing more of the effects of climate change. And some people can respond to it better depending on their income, the economy, the infrastructure. So we're all in the same boat together. We're just not all on the same deck. Yeah. So today, though, what we're going to talk about, Peterson, is the new video you've released, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. I just viewed it last night, but I think what we need to start with is part of my learning curve over the last couple of years has been to get a grip on sexual, gender identity, sex roles, the whole constellation of things, because I think 10 years ago when I first talked to you, non-conforming gender roles was really not on the map for me, at least. Maybe you were aware of it by 2007. Could you talk about what that looks like? Because, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people still running very hard or maybe digging their heels in to not catch up with the fact that males can have sex with males and females can have sex with females. There's a lot of people that are stopped at that point, and there's this whole other universe of issues that are going on. So could you lay out the map as it's been expanding in your consciousness? Well, a lot of people are obviously aware of uh, marriage equality, and now it's legal in all 50 states for two men to marry or two women to marry. And, and in a way, that's been the big issue that's been out in front. That and don't ask, don't tell, and getting access to the military, which as a gay guy who's also a Quaker, I struggle with, with that. <laughs> on the one hand, it's like, yes, we want access to everything, but ugh, I don't really want to promote the military. But the reality is that gender is different from sex, right? Sex is what we're assigned at birth, or sex is an act that we commit. So when a child is born, they typically hold up the baby, and they'll look between the legs and, and declare, this is a boy, this is a girl. And that is the sex assigned at birth, and it's usually from externals. Now, there are situations where someone is intersex. That's when a child is born and they may have ambiguous genitalia. And there has been a lot more talk about this where back in the day, and still in many places, it's a, a medical professional who decides, is this going to be a boy or a girl? And they may even do surgeries at a very early age to, to change the genitals. Uh, and there's been a very big, strong intersex movement to really sort of question this practice because people need to have the ability to decide for themselves or to declare for themselves what their sex is. And there are conditions where it's not visible, where um, there are over 30 intersex conditions. So this is a medical issue that has obviously other ramifications for people's identity and their lives. There's some really good information out there about intersex people and, and that movement. And then there's a whole other world of gender. 
Like, you know, and gender is such a weird moving target so often. Like, what makes a man? What makes a woman? This idea of maleness and femaleness, it changes, right? Depending on what geographical area you're from, what denomination you are in, in in a church, in your class, all these things, it makes it different. Like, when you say, like, what is a real man? What is a real woman? That's, in a way, a ridiculous question, because who's deciding what that is? And for me, as a gay guy, I have to say gender has been part of the struggle in my own life. When I was a kid, I was seen as a sensitive boy. And that meant that I was a little bit more artistic. I wasn't really into fighting and and playing war and the kind of considered butch masculine activities of boys. I definitely enjoyed playing more with dolls and I liked reading and I liked make believe all sorts of games. And this idea of that boys should do some activities and girls should do other activities, well, that's just ridiculous. But it's also very real. I mean, this is very much pushed in our society about how, again, boys and girls are supposed to act. So when I was bullied as a child, no one really bullied me for being gay. No one bullied me because of the sexual fantasies or desires that I had. People didn't see those. These were hidden in my head. I was bullied because I was read as something other than a proper boy. The way I dress, the way I talk, my activities, people judged me as being other than male or less than male. And we live in a society where masculinity and maleness is definitely privileged and valued more than femaleness and femininity and and females. So I understood that. And then when I went into the uh, conversion therapy world where I tried to become straight, I have to say about half of the treatments I received over 17 years of getting conversion therapy treatment, half of the treatments had to do with gender. Like what sort of activities I'm supposed to do as a man, teaching me how to play football and change the oil in my cars and cross my legs the proper way. Really silly, ridiculous things. But these things become a matter of life and death in many cases because when people transgress gender, when they break the rules that people establish, people can become violent about it. And when we hear about LGBTQ hate crimes, the vast majority of people who are experiencing these hate crimes are transgender people, particularly transgender women, especially transgender women of color. So in our society, we live where you're either a this or a that, right? You're either a conservative or a progressive. You're either a male or a female. You're either gay or straight. But there are lots of people who live in the middle, right? There are moderates politically. There are people who are bisexual. And there are people who maybe are femme males or butch females, or maybe they don't really feel like they're on either end of a spectrum, but they're somewhere in the middle where they are There's a lot of different terms, genderqueer, gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, where someone just says, you know, I don't really feel that those identities of male or female fit me. I am male and female, or I'm neither male nor female. This is actually not a new concept. It's just that we have new language for it. Having people who blend the two or don't live on those extremes, that's always been around in every culture. There's just been other names for it. 
So I think that lays out some of the background. And the place that we're going to be talking about today with Peterson Toscano is his new movie, Transfigurations, because it takes it on in the religious domain. And I would say, Peterson, by the way, that I think of you as a non-conforming religious person. I think the walls <laughs> could never be constructed high enough to confine you. Let's review a little bit of your background. You were raised Catholic, and at the age of 17, what happened? I became a born-again, evangelical, conservative, Republican, anti-gay Christian. Wow. I mean, that's crazy, given that I know you today. I mean, obviously, you've traveled many roads, and but I think that one of the abilities that gives you is the capacity to walk in other people's shoes. You've actually seen it from the other side. Does that mean you are more gentle with folks who don't agree or who are still on a, a different place on the journey than you are? Or does it mean that you sometimes there's no one quite as upset with smokers as an ex-smoker? You know what I mean? Does that mean you're more tolerant or less tolerant? You know, I think it's so easy to dehumanize other people and experiences that are different than ours. And we live in a political climate, for instance, where somebody on the other side is considered ignorant and a bigot and all sorts of negative things. But having lived as an evangelical Christian who was anti-gay and very much part of that Ronald Reagan, Pat Robertson kind of world, that was my world. I understand that it's far more complex than it gets portrayed in the media. And people are far more complex. And you'll have people with very noble intentions, but with really bad theology. And the intentions, I think, need to be validated as being really noble. And I think also we have these areas where we don't see clearly where we get it wrong. And this is true for progressives as well. And having been part of that world, I definitely remind myself not only what I did and what I believed, but why I was doing it and how I felt and why I thought at the time it was a very noble stance to take. And I remember that and I just kind of expect that anyone, whatever side they're on, they're usually doing it for very deep, noble purposes with deep values that need to be understood, even if I disagree with their way of looking at the world. It's easy if you know if you live in a very liberal place where everyone agrees with your politics and reads the same papers as you, it's easy. I live in rural central Pennsylvania in a congressional district that has been Republican for a very long time. My member of Congress was on Donald Trump's transition team, and this region went 70% of voting for Donald Trump as president. So I, on a daily basis, unless I refuse to talk to anybody, I'm on a daily basis interacting with all sorts of conservatives, and, uh, and we're working on all kinds of projects together in the region. So I have that opportunity that I think you know some folks that live on the coasts typically don't or in larger cities don't. But then you get into the area of the Bible, and many people treat the Bible as sacred. That's a spoiler alert, I should have said before that. <laughs> <laughs> and specifically, what I think people do is they treat their interpretation of the Bible as sacred, not just the book, but I have the perfect grasp on it, and I've listened to the perfect lectures about it. And you've opened my eyes with several of the things that you've highlighted from the Bible. 
because you were a born again Christian, conservative, evangelical, you had a certain grasp on the Bible, and it was conservative. I I think. Did you have any of the hints of the stuff that comes out in your video transfigurations? Did you have any hint of those non-conforming sexual roles before you became a next gay survivor? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> I I knew the Bible very well. For almost 20 years, I read it every single day. I memorized whole chapters and books of the Bible. I studied it on a regular basis. But what happens a lot is there's an interpretation that gets handed down. And this was true in the Catholic Church. It's definitely true in Protestant churches where there's this church-sanctioned interpretation. This is what the story means. This is what this passage means. So the studying isn't necessarily to get deeper understanding, but to, in a way, confirm the existing interpretations. Now, one thing that I always had, though, even during those evangelical years, is that I'm an actor. I'm a trained actor. And so working with young people, we would often look at the Bible and try to find humor in it, find relationships that we could, you know, explore maybe through theater. And so that gave me a chance to be a little creative in the regards. But my eyes were totally shut off from seeing gender nonconforming Bible characters. And even after I came out, most people were just talking about who is gay in the Bible or lesbian, meaning who was partnered with someone of the same sex. That was the big discourse. But this idea of looking at people who are breaking the rules about gender or who don't fit traditionally as male or female, that was a revelation to me. Now that you've had the revelation, you share it in your video. And folks, the place you want to track this down is via petersontoscano.com. The first thing you're going to see on that page at the moment is Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. And right away, you have to start out with that word transgressing, Peterson. What do you mean by transgressing in the sense of the title of this video? Transgressing, for me, is about obviously breaking the established rules and the norms. So when I went to do my research about these Bible characters, I asked the question, who in the text transgresses and transcends gender? So who breaks the rules about gender? Who rises above them is able to act outside of the expected gender roles and expectations? When I looked for gender transgressors, I first started with eunuchs. In the Bible, there are people known as eunuchs. In the ancient world, and lots of places in the ancient world, eunuchs were servants, they were slaves, they were officials in royal courts and temples and in rich families. And these, the broadest definition of a eunuch is a, a non-procreative male. So someone who is seen as male but can't have children. And in the ancient world, the most common thing was for people to get married and have children. I mean, that was the template. And for someone not to have children and be male was weird, was different. Not necessarily gay, but it was odd. And so you had these people who were altered physically. They were castrated. And this castration normally happened before puberty. It often they didn't give their consent for this either. I'm sure there were some eunuchs who wanted to be eunuchs, but, but most were forced to be eunuchs against their will. And since they were castrated before puberty, they never experienced puberty. 
They retained high voices. They didn't develop the facial or the body hair that comes with testosterone, the, the muscles that build more easily after testosterone in the system. They looked and sounded different from the men and women around them. They were not male, not female, something in the middle or altogether different. And that is important because sometimes when we read a story and it says a eunuch, we may not have a very clear picture in our mind. So there's a famous story in Acts chapter 8 about an Ethiopian eunuch. And for a person of that time, hearing that, an Ethiopian eunuch, they immediately have an image in their mind of a foreigner from Africa who is not male or not female. It would be hard to track this person physically even if you looked at this person. Is that a, a man or a woman? No beard? You know, high voice? What What is this person? This is a surgically altered gender variant person who's a foreigner, a person of color, probably darker than the people living in Israel and Palestine at that time, where everybody was dark except maybe the, the Romans, but darker, you know, from Africa. And this is the first baptism of the early church. Philip is told by the Spirit to go and talk to this person, the ultimate outsider in so many ways. So I, in the play, Transfigurations, I explore What's it like to be this person who had just come from the temple, we're told? And I'm thinking about the temple. It's a highly gendered space. Everyone has their place. I mean, the priest and the high priest in one place, of course, but men on one side and women and children on the other side. This foreigner who is neither male nor female, who has no family, enters these temple grounds. Where do they go? Right. Yeah. And how do they feel? where everyone seems to have family. And that's just not part of the equation, not an easy part of the equation, at least. And what's curious to me is the person goes away with a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which must have been very expensive. And this was a rich person. It was a treasurer of Queen Candace's court in Ethiopia. The person is reading aloud, because that's how people read in the ancient world, when Philip comes by and hears the eunuch reading from this Hebrew text and asks the eunuch somewhat of an insensitive <laughs> question, um, do you understand what you're reading? Oh, wow. <laughs> sort of like kind of almost incredulous, like, do you really understand it? I mean, you're reading it, but do you get it? But, but actually, there were people who were able to, I don't know, maybe just, you know, I don't know all what was going on behind Philip's asking that question, but the eunuch answers with another question. Well, how can I unless someone explains to me? And of course, as an actor, you wonder, was that said sarcastically? <laughs> <laughs> was it an open question? But they sit and they have these questions back and forth. But this is what's extraordinary. What is the text that the eunuch is puzzling over that's wondering who wrote this text? Think about it. This is a person who, as a child, was taken from his home, was held down and operated on, whose genitals were changed and developed differently than the boys around, and didn't have a deeper voice, couldn't have children, looked and sounded different. And they're reading a passage from Isaiah's prophecy that says, like a sheep before the shearer is silent, like a lamb before the slaughter, he too opened not his mouth, and his humiliation Justice was denied him. Who can speak of his offspring? For his life was cut off. So that only came to me by performing it, by 
becoming that eunuch in my own study, just kind of imagining that world and as an actor accessing, you know, what might be. And of course, it has to be said, it might be. We don't know for sure. And we need to look at these texts with open hands. But I think there's a very important question for us today when we see the story. And that is, if a person who looks and sounds like the Ethiopian eunuch walked into your congregation the day that you're having your service, would they go away rejoicing like this eunuch does in the story? The eunuch has this wonderful experience with Philip. It's very affirming, gets baptized, and goes away rejoicing. But today in churches and synagogues and Quaker meeting houses in America, white or black or whatever, if someone that looks and sounds like this Ethiopian eunuch walks in the door, what is the quality of their experience? And that's the question I think important to ask today. And we'll ask more about that question in just a moment. First, I want to remind all you listeners that you are tuned in to Spirit in Action. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production web northernspiritradio.org with almost 12 years of our programs for free listening and download place to post comments you can link up with our guests and there's a donate button that's especially crucial right now our funds are very low so remember to click donate and make sure this is possible to continue because we're not supported by corporations or by government it's because you the listener want these programs to continue right now we're carried on 28 and I think maybe as of today I'm going to confirm 29 stations nationwide so please remember to click donate when you come even more important make sure those community radio stations are there to share thought and word and music that you get nowhere else on the american landscape start first by supporting your local community radio station peterson toscano is here today for spirit in action and he's sharing about his video transfigurations transgressing gender in the bible he's been on our program three times before and he's actually featured every three months sharing portions of citizens climate radio podcasts that he prepares you'll find those links all on northernspiritradio.org and not only has he been here on the program but glenn retief his partner his husband has been here too talking about his book the jack bank and if you haven't learned about glenn's journey it's really powerful he grew up in apartheid south africa so he's got an amazing story to share there so again peterson toscano is here with us today and you were just talking peterson about the ethiopian eunuch and that's only one of many eunuchs that's in there and the first you say the first christian baptism of the new church now of course everybody knows about jesus getting baptized so maybe he gets to count as number one but are there really no other cases of baptism counted in between there No, I mean, you have some preaching that happens in early parts of Acts in Jerusalem, but this is the first recorded baptism that we we learn about. And the, the writer of Acts goes out of their way to tell us about this story and to tell us so much about the convert. I mean, if you look at it and you look at all the people we know in the New Testament, the Christian Bible, we know more about this Ethiopian eunuch than anybody else other than Jesus we learn so much about this person's background and identity without even ever knowing the person's name. That's You'd include in there Mary and Joseph? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously they're big characters, as is, as is Paul. But particularly for someone who is just mentioned once in a story, you learn so much about this person and their background. 
in just one or two verses, but it needs to be unpacked often because people just, and when you're reading it, you're reading through the narrative, looking at the action. And to me, as a, as a Bible scholar who's also a performer, I'm interested in the people and in slowing down that process and trying to, to highlight who's featured in these texts. Do we actually know something about how, in general, eunuchs were treated in the religious society of the Jews? Because, you know, there's places, things that women at that time could not do in religious services. For instance, when you want to have a minion, which you need 10 adult males in the traditional view, to have your religious services, did a eunuch count amongst those 10? Do we actually know that kind of stuff? There's an excellent dissertation by Dr. Janet Everhart, and she explores a lot about eunuchs in the ancient world, both biblical and non-biblical eunuchs. So definitely worth checking out her work, Everhart, E-V-E-R-H-A-R-T. She teaches at Simpson College in Iowa. You know, it's so interesting to see the trajectory of how eunuchs are treated in the Bible. Early on in the law in Deuteronomy, Uh, People who are castrated, who have crushed testicles, which is one of the forms of castration that they use, they were considered outsiders, they were considered abomination, and they were rejected from the assembly. So they're seen in this negative light in the law. Then there are all the stories of eunuchs that appear in the text. So in the book of Esther, for instance, there are 12 eunuchs that have names that are part of the action there. There are other eunuchs in in Jeremiah. There's a eunuch in Jeremiah 38 who actually rescues Jeremiah and gets a promise from Jeremiah. Since you saved me, you will be blessed. Not you and your household, but you will be blessed. Something then extraordinary happens in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of prophecy where there's a lot of justice work that takes place. In Jeremiah chapter 56, there's this extraordinary passage that seems to update the text, update what was prohibited in Deuteronomy. So it's this bold series of promises to both foreigners and to eunuchs. It's almost as if the text is correcting itself and saying, you know what, we have some better understanding of this circumstance. So in Isaiah 56, it says, let not the eunuch say, I'm a dried up old tree with no future and no hope. For to those eunuchs who keep my command and honor my Sabbath, I will give you a memorial better than sons and daughters. I will write your names on the walls of my house and you will never be cut off. And we just ignore that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's, that's just filler from many people's points of view. Jesus does transgress a lot himself, and I, I think that's a tradition that would be good to hold on to. I mean, he talks to the woman at the well, right? You've had seven husbands, or did I get the number right? I think that's right, yeah. And I mean, for him as a rabbi, speaking to a woman by himself that was transgressive. Yeah. Well, and Mike Pence won't do that, you know? I mean, <laughs> and that's true. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he does it in other ways too. So, for instance, there's a famous story where these two sisters, Mary and Martha, who come up in a bunch of Jesus stories, particularly in the book of John. And at one point, Martha's busy preparing food, traditional female work. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha gets all pissy about it and says, Hey, Jesus, tell my sister to get in here and help me. We got hungry disciples to feed. And Jesus says, no, it's fine. She's chosen the better part. 
And what's interesting, I've heard sermons spoken about Mary and Martha many times, and people, pastors will say, do you want to be a busy Martha who's always just too busy to, to sit at Jesus' feet, or, or are you more of a Mary who is reflective and good follower of Jesus? And you know, the, the idea is that Mary's work is more important than Martha's work, which of course, it's fine for a male pastor to say, but it's the women who are getting a lot of the work done. <laughs> There'd be no coffee hour without the Marthas, male and female, who were getting the coffee ready and uh, weren't in the, in the service. But actually, what Jesus is doing here is very transgressive. Mary has taken the place of a male disciple at the feet of a rabbi. That was wrong for the time. And Jesus is saying, absolutely not. She wants to learn. Women can learn, too. And, you know, even, you know, there's a lot of stories about Jesus having his feet washed by women, some who were sex workers and others who were not. Mary, for instance, of Mary and Martha, she washes Jesus' feet. Now, this isn't Mary Magdalene. That's another Mary. And by the way, Mary Magdalene is not a prostitute, although people talk about her being a sex worker. That actually is not in the text that's come up in tradition afterwards. But there are sex workers who also wash Jesus' feet. But so you have all these women washing Jesus' feet. And then you have one man in all of the Christian scripture that we see washing other men's feet, and that is Jesus. And it's a sign of humility. It's something that a servant would do, but it's also something that it seems exclusively what we see in these stories only women are doing. So Jesus is not opposed to doing what would be seen as menial work and female work. And there's that famous story, too, about the Last Supper, when they have their Last Supper together, and they didn't know where they were going to celebrate the Passover, which is like a week of meals. Jesus says, oh, go into town. You're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow that one home and say to the master of the house that we have need of a place. And that's exactly what happened. But this is a curious question. Why was a man carrying a pitcher of water? In a society where only slaves and servants, women and children carry water. The Greek word here clearly says you'll find a man carrying water, not a servant. And if it were a common practice for men to carry water, well, then the disciples would have had a really hard time figuring out which man they were supposed to follow because there'd be too many. And even in the conservative NIV study Bible, there's a note at the bottom that says it was very rare, exceptional for a man to carry water. This would have been seen as a transgressive act. And it was the signal that Jesus said, look out for that. That's going to lead us to our our room, which led them to their Last Supper, which leads many Christians to Holy Communion today. And these are just a few examples. Now, that last one, Peterson, is included in the video. You do mention that there. But the other things you talked about were not included in the video. Let's note, by the way, folks, that Peterson Toscano has presented in a number of places. When he talks about being a Bible scholar, he's presented at Yale, Harvard, Vanderbilt, Chicago Theological Seminary, Earlham College. You've presented at all these places. Do they require you to have a card saying that you've created a, a master's or you've been to a seminary to speak these places, or will they just let any Quaker rabble in? <laughs> well, um, I'm fortunate that I've been able to have my work be peer-reviewed at the Society for Biblical Literature conference, which is the big 
annual academic conference of Bible scholars, my work was reviewed by other Bible scholars. And then I presented it publicly and they shared their peer review. And I was so thrilled that it stood up to the scholarship and was very heartily endorsed by these very, very accredited, acknowledged Bible scholars. So I don't think just anybody can go into a place and do Bible work. And the academy is often very close to people who don't have advanced degrees. But fortunately, my work has found its way because the scholarship is sound. And also, I think people are really interested in this alternative presentation style using performance to do the presentation. And that's really important. And again, folks, we're talking about Peterson Toscano's video, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. How do you find it? Well, you might be able to search for those words, but if you go to petersontoscano.com, and I've got a link on nordenspiritradio.org, if you go there, the first thing you'll see, you'll be able to order a copy of the DVD. Pretty soon, it'll be streaming via Amazon. Look to his site for that announcement when it's ready. And, you know, you can find it via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean. That's where you can find him presenting his Citizens Climate Radio episodes, which is another facet of his work. But if you want to track down Transfigurations, go to petersontoscano.com. There are a couple other things I wanted to talk about, Peterson, before we run out of time. You just introduced me to several ideas of non-conforming roles that people have pretty much ignored. They grab one piece of it and they ignore another. My very first Quaker meeting that I sat in was in somebody's house, and I thought, well, since we're going to be quiet for an hour, I should try and think something profound. So I started thinking about the story from the Garden of Eden. Most people perhaps are have been exposed to the idea that there are really two creation stories. In the first creation story in Genesis, it includes a really important phrase. It says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And, you know, God created mankind in his own image. I was playing with that idea just recently, and I realized, wait a minute, God created them in his image, and he created them male and female in his image. One of the things that I think that says to me is that God is nonconforming, that God is both male and female. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I, you recently had um, Liam Hooper on your show, and he does a lot of work around the Hebrew in Genesis 1 and 2 and all of this language about gender and even how Adam is a non-gendered being in a way. It's an earthling is probably a better interpretation as opposed to we'll make a man, but this earthling literally something made of the earth. And what I've done in my film is I've put out questions. And I I made some rules for myself. I didn't want to talk about Jesus's gender or God's gender. Not because I don't think it's important to talk about, but I wanted this to reach a broad group of people, including the folks that I knew back in the evangelical days. I wanted to talk about stories that they would be able to connect with. And I didn't want to bring up anything that was going to become too controversial to trip people up. So the way the film is designed is literally, no matter how progressive or conservative you are, you should be able to watch this and hear and see and think in ways that are inviting and welcoming. That's important to me. 
I also have two versions of the presentation on the DVD. So there's a performance lecture version where I perform scenes from a Bible story, and then I go into the interpretation and the Hebrew or the Greek and go into the understanding of it. So it's, it becomes this visual Bible study, and that's an hour long. And then there's this 45-minute version, which is a play which has all of those stories and more, but held together with the story of one of Jesus's disciples. So it, it serves as a play version. I did that because scholarship is really important and art is really important. And they both have their place and sometimes they can be blended like in the performance lecture version. But other times I just think the artistic version helps us to relax enough to take in fresh new ways of looking at things. So we don't have to take notes necessarily. We can just sit there and enjoy. That's right. And I'm working on a study guide. People have been asking me, can we have a study guide? Because people have been showing the DVD now at their places of worship as a Bible study, and they've been showing it in sections and then discussing it. So uh, I'm putting together a, a study guide with some questions that could help people with that. That will also be available through petersontoscano.com. Is your ministry largely within Quakers, within gender-variant people, to the wider society? Where do you see it as that you're aiming and where it's being best received? I'm fortunate in that I'm able to move in and out of all sorts of spaces. So I do a lot of work at secular universities. I'm in and out of all kinds of denominations, both churches and conferences. So pretty much every Christian denomination, including Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons in the U.S. I've been part of. And I'm definitely obviously involved with Quakers a lot. I'll be at the um, North Pacific Yearly Meeting, uh, Northwest Pacific Yearly Meeting, the liberal one up in uh, Tacoma this summer. And I'm in and out of Quaker institutions all the time. So it's very broad. When I am with Quakers, I recognize that there are people curious about the Bible, but also who have a very understandable negative reaction because they see how the Bible has been used as a weapon by people who have weaponized it to hurt marginalized people. There are even refugees among liberal Quakers who have come from those traditions like I have. And so there is this tenderness that is required. But we live in a culture in the United States where the Bible is a very important privileged text. You have most of our lawmakers identify as Christian, and many of them regularly quote the Bible. So it is critical that there are people who are literate in the Bible. And I think that among liberal Quakers, there is this openness and this curiosity. And while there's this idea that Quakers don't know a lot about the Bible, there is a good base of knowledge with some, but there's also open spaces. So at the Friends General Conference gathering, there's the Bible Half Hour, which is very popular and well attended. I presented that in 2012, and it was just packed. So there's a need for us to have some understanding of the Bible. But understanding, too, that it's not the only text to know. And I think for the more traditional Christians and religious people and Bible readers, it's important for them to maybe look outside of the Bible to literature and to other works, even, say, George Fox's journal and all that could be really helpful for them. And for Quakers who don't have a lot of experience with the Bible, you know, having an experience with it could be very positive and helpful. And it might even be a way that you can have a conversation with a neighbor for whom the Bible is really important. 
I started attending the Friends General Conference gathering back in 1983. One of the speakers in 1985, when we were in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, was Sonia Johnson. And for people who don't know Sonia Johnson, she grew up Mormon. She got in trouble as being a feminist within that organization, eventually self-identified as lesbian. In any case, she spoke about masculine and feminine identities. And she was clearly saying that the masculine culture is bad. That's the stuff that's war force, not listening, etc. So she had a pretty black and white approach to it. She got to the end of it, and she did something non-gender conforming. She said, you know, I, I know that you very patiently listened to me. There's a lot of men in the audience here. I want to recognize that, again, I've been talking about masculine culture, not about men per se as being identified with these bad things. And so I just want to do something to include you all. And so I hereby make all of you men who are present, I make you honorary females. And I think that's my first experience being a non-gender conforming male because I got to be an honorary female for the first time in my life. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's you know, it's an interesting thought experiment for people to do, and that's what we do as as actors, right? We experience another person's experience, obviously, in a limited way with with limited knowledge of it. But doing that, like you know, back in two thousand eight, I did a, a play for FGC gathering, the reeducation of George W. Bush, No President Left Behind. And although the title sounds like it's this very partisan, anti-Republican kind of thing, it was far more complex than that. But the scene that I think people were most moved by was based on a series of interviews where I met with black women in Hartford, Connecticut, and I paid them as consultants. And I asked them, if I woke up tomorrow as a black woman, how might my experience of the world be different? And I took down everything they said, and then I created a character who was reporting back to President Bush, a straight guy from Texas, reporting back to President Bush about how he had to live for a week as a black woman. It was obviously a ridiculous, absurd notion, but how his life was different. And by using that absurdity and obviously the real world experience and, and weaving that into the monologue, people found it to be quite moving. And I think that's how theater can be transformative, both for the actor and for the audience. You've produced so many good plays, theatrical, and now this video. And again, the name, folks, is Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible by Peterson Toscano. Go to petersontoscano.com to see it. We're going to end with a clip from your video, from the theatrical performance part of it. And I want to set this up, Peterson. The person who's talking, who you're representing, who you're playing in the video is Esau. And Esau, again, is Jacob, who is also known as Israel, the father of Israel. And you point out the ways in which Israel, Jacob, is non-gender conforming, and his son is non-conforming, the one we know as Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, that Joseph. So we're going to end with that, but first I want to just thank you so much for opening up our minds and our hearts, and those are two different things. Sometimes they go sequentially, and sometimes they can come together, and sometimes we never get to either one. You've been opening up minds and hearts for so long, and doing this by reaching out to the Bible, which is so important to be inclusive in our country. 
And I also thank you, of course, for sitting in for me every three months by sharing Citizens Climate Radio here on Northern Spirit Radio. I've got so many reasons to be thankful to you, including connecting me up with Liam Hooper. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and I hope to have you again soon on Spirit in Action. Thank you very much. And and credit needs to be given where credit's due as well, not just for all the work that you're doing and the platforms that you give people. I think that's really important to acknowledge, but also the tender way that you do it. You're a good interviewer because there's um, a tenderness about you that mixes with curiosity. And I think that brings out a good interview. I also want to give credit to Samuel Neff, who is the director of the film. I mean, sure, I bring the material and the performance, but the film, I think, is so powerful because it's so intimate. It's so beautifully filmed and edited with beautiful music. So it's not just me on stage being filmed in front of a live audience. It's all been done in a studio in a way that it can even be very powerful on a small screen. So I want to especially thank Samuel Neff for the amazing work that he's done as director. Thank you for that, Peterson. Again, folks, we're going to conclude our visit with Peterson Toscano with just a glimpse into the audio of his video, Transfigurations, Transgressing Gender in the Bible. This is Esau speaking. He's talking to us about his nephew. We know him as Joseph of the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Thank you so much, Peterson. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's a little bit more of Peterson. So one day I pulled my brother aside. I said, listen, you got to do something to this kid. Uh, Toughen him up. It's a rough world. They're just going to ride right over him. But does he listen to me? No. He gives him everything he wants, including that robe. Listen, (laughs) I would want nothing to do with a robe like that. For one, too expensive for my taste. A, A royal garment. The kind of garment that a a king would give to his virgin daughter. It was a princess dress. (laughs) Yeah, my brother Jacob, he gave his son Joseph a princess dress. And that kid, he put that dress on. He flitted about the compound like he was some kind of butterfly. And I thought, this is not going to end well. Sure enough, one day when the boys were out in the field doing real men's work, Jacob sent Joseph to go check on them. And that kid, no sense in his head, he puts on the stupid dress, goes traipsing across the countryside, making fools out of all of us. His brothers, they saw him in a distance. (laughs) Who could miss him in that getup? And they said, enough of this dreamer. And they rushed him. They threw him to the ground. They beat him black and blue trying to beat some sense into him. Then they ripped off the stupid dress, tore it to pieces, defiled it in blood, and came back with a bloody garment and a story about how their brother was attacked by a wild beast, and that's all that remained. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. 
with every voice.